You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 23, the Stamp Act Congress. Now, no one was surprised that the colonies were not fans of the Stamp Act. The act drew near universal condemnation in America. The only thing that divided the colonists were between the camp that believed, yeah, it sucks, but the law is the law, and those in the camp of, this will not stand. A surprisingly large number of people at all levels of colonial society seemed to fall in that latter camp. The objections went far beyond, taxes are annoying because they cost me money. Rather, people in all classes seemed to accept the opinion held by only radical Whigs in London that this was a fundamental freedom issue. Even if the taxes did not hit you personally, or at least not very hard, everyone seemed to grasp that this could be the beginning of much larger problems. Once colonists accepted the idea that Parliament could lay direct taxes on them, there was no line they could draw when those taxes became higher, broader, and more intrusive. Without representation in Parliament, the colonies had no effective way to prevent the government from continually reaching into the colonial piggy bank any time they needed a little extra cash. And let's face it, all governments think they can use a little extra cash. Some in London thought this might be resolved by giving the colonists a few representatives in Parliament, but the idea never really went anywhere because the colonists themselves rejected the idea. If you had separate tax policies for England and the colonies, a small minority of members would not be able to do anything as the English majority passed legislation against their interests. The colonists saw the way England was able to suck money out of Wales and Scotland, even with some representation in Parliament, those regions remained much poorer and dependent on England and its majority in Parliament. Any principled stand, therefore, had to be based on the idea that colonial taxes could only come from colonial legislatures. Parliament never had authorization to tax colonists, and this power grab was an act of tyranny. It's also worth noting that the wrath of the colonists was squarely focused on Parliament and the Granville Ministry, not the king himself. Colonists were emphatically not seeking independence. They wanted to be partners in the royal empire governed by King George. The English Parliament would regulate England, while colonial legislatures would regulate the colonies. They could still cooperate in protecting all British interests from outside attack. Under current law, when colonial legislatures passed any law, it had to be approved by the king through the Privy Council. Therefore, the king still retained control over colonial actions, and no one was seeking to change that. They simply wanted the English Parliament to deal with matters in England, while the colonial legislatures dealt with matters in the colonies. Like the previous year with the Sugar Act, colonial legislatures sent protests to Parliament and petitions to the King objecting to the Stamp Act. 
Before the act even passed, six colonies had written protests saying that such an act was unacceptable. In Massachusetts, James Otis had become head of the legislature's Committee of Correspondence. Rather than simply shoot off another petition to Parliament, Otis recommended Massachusetts encourage other colonies to get together in a regional Congress. That way, the colonies could put together a united effort to repeal the Stamp Act. This initiative led to the Stamp Act Congress a few months later, and which I'll get to in a few minutes. But this proposal also had the effect of delaying an immediate response from most colonies. Most seemed content to wait for a coordinated event in the fall. Now, Virginia, like the other colonies, seemed content to wait for a concerted action later in the year, and they probably would have done so but for the actions of one freshman member of the House of Burgesses who wanted to make a statement before the session ended. Patrick Henry was still in his late 20s and already had a reputation for being a troublemaker. He had built on the reputation established by the Parsons case, which I discussed back in episode 17. As a member of the House of Burgesses, he had already attacked a bill that year that would have helped credit-starved plantation owners to borrow government funds. The House leaders supported the bill, and as you might guess, so did the wealthiest plantation owners in the colony. Henry spoke out against the bill and saw it defeated, winning him no friends in the House. In late May 1765, as members were rushing to get out of town before the summer heat, Henry decided to introduce five resolves in response to the Stamp Act. These became known as the Virginia Resolves, and the first four were relatively uncontroversial and which in summary said, colonists have the same rights as subjects in Britain, that Britain only taxes its people through the authority of its legislative body, and that Virginia has traditionally only been taxed by its own legislature. The fifth resolved, however, raised some eyebrows. Quote, Resolved, therefore, that the General Assembly of this colony have the only and exclusive right and power to lay taxes and impositions upon the inhabitants of this colony and that every attempt to vest such power in any person or persons whatsoever, other than the General Assembly aforesaid, has a manifest tendency to destroy British as well as American freedom. End quote. In other words, Virginians could only be taxed by the colonial legislature and not Parliament. It was the crux of the whole dispute and the most hotly contested point. The Burgesses debated the resolves and passed them in a closely divided vote. Because several more conservative members were not present for the vote, they held a second vote the next day that repealed the controversial Fifth Resolve. Despite making the repeal, newspapers all over the continent and in Britain reported all five resolves, making Virginia look like a hotbed of protest. To inflame issues even more, most papers reported two additional resolves that were never even considered. One said that colonists were not bound to pay taxes other than those of the General Assembly, and another said that anyone who supported other taxes, either in speech or writing, should be deemed an enemy of the colony. Past or not, these were the fighting words that everyone read in the papers. Now, some colonial leaders, particularly in New England, realized that tough words were not enough. They would only defeat the Stamp Act by refusing to allow it to take effect. Nine Boston working-class men formed a group in the summer of 1765 known as the Loyal Nine. Their purpose was to prevent Stamp Act enforcement in Massachusetts. 
The group expanded quickly and changed its name in honor of Isaac Barra's speech to the Sons of Liberty. This group was not interested in recruiting lawyers and politicians. Rather, they were looking for working-class folks who did not mind brawling in the streets. On the morning of August 14, 1775, Bostonians found two hanging effigies on High Street. One was labeled A.O. the Taxman, a clear reference to Andrew Oliver, who had been appointed stamp tax agent for Massachusetts. The other effigy was the devil, but some thought it was meant to represent Prime Minister Grenville himself. When the sheriff tried to take down the effigies, an angry mob chased him away. Later that day, about 3,000 men, led by Ebenezer McIntosh, the gang leader from the South Side who we discussed back in episode 21, descended on the wharf to destroy a small recently built shack that was to become the stamp tax office. After disassembling it and throwing the pieces into a bonfire, the mob marched to Andrew Oliver's house. Oliver had wisely fled and remained in hiding as the mob destroyed everything in his house. Now, it's important to remember that Boston, like virtually every other city and town in North America, had no professional police force at this time. They had a sheriff who, in times of trouble that required more hands, had the authority to call up the militia to restore order. As the mob was rampaging through the streets on the 14th, Governor Bernard asked the sheriff to call up the militia. The sheriff had to inform him that most of the militia were in the mob already. With that, Bernard instructed his servants to hide his valuables and fled to the safety of Castle William in Boston Harbor. Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson showed a little more backbone by confronting the mob in the streets with the sheriff and reading them the riot act. Now that was a real thing. The riot act required authorities to inform an unlawful assembly that they needed to disperse before it could use force, often lethal force, to break up the rioters. Before Hutchinson could finish reading the mob the riot act, they chased Hutchinson and the sheriff down the street. Fortunately for them, they both escaped the mob and went into hiding. The next day, a group of men met with Oliver to recommend that he resign as stamp tax collector before something worse happened. Oliver pointed out that he had not yet even received his formal appointment, but did announce that he would not collect any taxes and would send instructions to London that he would not accept the position. That small victory led to further rioting on August 26. Rumors swirled for days in advance. People from the countryside swarmed into Boston to participate. Again, led by Ebenezer McIntosh, the group targeted the homes of Charles Paxton, the Surveyor of Customs, Benjamin Hollowell, the Comptroller of Customs, and William Storey, Register of the Vice Admiralty Court. Now, Paxton's landlord, eager to save his property, bought off the mob by bringing out a barrel of rum punch and convincing the rioters that he was on their side and could they please not destroy his property. Hollowell and Story were not as lucky, as the now drunken rioters ransacked and destroyed their homes, also raiding their large wine cellars and getting even more drunk. Next, they turned to Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson's mansion. Unlike the others, Hutchinson had remained in his home, but threatening mobs forced him to flee for his life along with his family as rioters stole or destroyed nearly every piece of furniture and other items in his lavish home. They even began ripping off the roof shingles and cutting down a cupola on the top of his house. 
Now, you may ask why they didn't simply burn the homes. Well, doing so would cause an out-of-control fire that would likely destroy neighbors' homes as well. The mob remained disciplined enough to restrict damage to the actual targets of their wrath. Let's keep our riots neat and tidy, guys. One might be tempted to attribute the rioting to the organizing skills of Samuel Adams and the new Sons of Liberty organization. But in fact, Boston was not the only town where such rioting occurred. On August 27th, a group in Newport, Rhode Island, hung effigies in town bearing the likenesses of Augustus Johnston, the designated stamp back distributor for the colony, as well as Thomas Moffat and Martin Howard, outspoken advocates for British taxation. It's not clear if the date was coordinated with the Boston riots, but there is evidence that the Rhode Island protesters had been planning for at least a week. When Johnston did not take the hint to resign the next day, rioters moved that evening to ransack the homes of the three men who had been hung in effigy. The men themselves sought refuge on a British naval vessel in the harbor. On the 28th, Johnston resigned his office, and rioters actually returned most of the household items afterwards. In Maryland, Zachariah Hood was hanged in effigy on August 29th. Failing to take the hint, he saw his warehouses burned on September 2nd. Undeterred, Hood fled to New York, where he remained under military protection. When he finally tried to leave his protective custody in November, a group of 100 men kidnapped him and forced him to resign. Returning home to Maryland, he found that no one in the colony would do business with him. Broken, he eventually moved to England. In Connecticut, stamp distributor Jared Ingersoll was also kidnapped and forced to resign in front of an angry mob. In Pennsylvania, John Hughes, who was the stamp distributor for the colony, was hanged in effigy and had to put his house under guard. He was also Speaker of the House and refused to send delegates to the Stamp Act Congress, leading to a tense night in front of his home between angry mobs and armed guards. Although he avoided outright violence, his career in politics was over, and he found that even doing business was nearly impossible. He eventually left Pennsylvania for good. Stamp Act officials in other colonies quickly resigned their commissions, either upon hearing of possible threats against them or their property, or simply based on what they heard about in other places like Boston or Newport. Unlucky George Mercer of Virginia arrived on a ship from England in October with stamped paper aboard the same ship. Met at the dock by an angry crowd of 2,000, he was obliged to resign his commission before he could disembark. In New York, the Stamp Act agent had been forced to resign early on. However, when the stamp paper arrived on October 23rd, Governor Colden, supported by 180 British regulars, decided to unload the stock at Fort George secretly and at night. The public quickly discovered what had happened and a mob of 2,000 men besieged the fort. They destroyed the British commander's home, threw rocks at the soldiers in the fort, and taunted them to fire. The soldiers wisely decided not to fire on the crowd. Major James could have fired the shot heard round the world that day in 1765. Doing so likely would have resulted in the mob arming itself and overrunning the fort. General Gage was in the city, but not in the fort, trying to give the impression that everything was fine. He wanted the governor to turn over the paper and prevent bloodshed. After a couple of weeks, on November 5th, Governor Colden did just that. Like Boston, the mobs in New York were large, angry, and motivated. Unlike Boston, they were not terribly organized. 
and this indicates that the lower classes were just as motivated as anyone else to block the Stamp Act. They did not need upper-class leaders to challenge officials. By November 1st, the day the Stamp Act was supposed to go into effect, only Georgia, which still had several companies of British regulars on hand and a relatively small Sons of Liberty group, was able to make any attempt at forcing the new law. The tax distributor in that colony arrived in December, sold a few stamp documents, before he too wisely decided to pack up and go. Massachusetts had proposed a meeting for a coordinated political response to the Stamp Act. In light of the summer riots, such a meeting seemed more important than ever. Despite that, four governors successfully prevented state legislatures from meeting to select delegates. Therefore, New Hampshire, Virginia, North Carolina, and Georgia did not send delegates. Nova Scotia, also invited, declined to send a delegation. So 27 delegates from nine colonies met in New York City Hall, later called Federal Hall, on October 7, 1765. Over the next 18 days, the group negotiated a response. Sadly for historians, the meetings were not open to the public and no good notes of negotiations have survived, although there is a bare-bones journal of events. And if you care to read any of these original documents, please check out my blog at amrevpodcast.blogspot.com where there are links to the journal and a great many of the other documents created by the Stamp Act Congress. So Congress produced a Declaration of Rights and Grievances, which made clear that they remained loyal to the king and owed all due subordination to Parliament. They stated that they had the same rights as subjects in Britain, including the right not to be taxed except through their representatives. They were not represented in Parliament and could not be properly represented there. Therefore, only their local legislatures could impose taxes. Next, they focused on the age-old British right to trial by jury. They argued that by trying cases in admiralty courts, Britain was subverting that right. The Congress also pointed out the real-world problems with the law, extracting hard currency for taxes when there was not enough in the colonies to pay it. It certainly would prevent them from having money to make private purchases from British merchants. Therefore, Congress humbly requested repeal of the Stamp Act and use of admiralty courts to try colonists. The Congress used the Declaration to produce petitions for the King, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons. Now, the full text of these documents are interesting, but I'm not going to read them in full here. If you're interested, I really recommend doing so. But the petition to the King comes with all the humility and flattery that you reserve for the guy who can have you hanged if he decides you're being too impertinent. Something along the lines of, We love being British subjects and all, but would you really mind reinstating our basic rights to tax ourselves and have jury trials? The House of Lords petition focuses more on the need to restore ancient rights, and the House of Commons petition focuses more on the economic harm and points out the harm to both British and colonial economies that the loss of trade will cause if the law continues. Interestingly, none of the documents advocated resistance to the law, addressed the rioting taking place, or threatened any sort of action should the king or parliament fail to act. The threats of loss of trade were not explicit threats of a boycott. Rather, they were simple economics. Take away all our cash, and we won't have any money to buy from your merchants in London. The Congress sent petitions to London, but did not release them to the public. 
it would not be until the following spring when a Boston newspaper received copies and published them, and most Americans then found them far too timid and weak. The obsequious language and the failure to reference colonial reactions to the law was quite intentional. Congress did not want to give any indication that it was fomenting treason. Some thought that the Congress, which was extra-legal, might itself be treason, directly attacking royal or parliamentary authority in more aggressive way might be seen as advocating treason. Similarly, discussing riots or boycotts in any way other than complete condemnation, which they were not ready to do, could also be construed as treason. Therefore, best to ignore these issues. Despite keeping the petitions mild and respectful, Parliament rejected them as coming from an unlawful assembly. London was not going to do anything to encourage colonies from getting together and coordinating a united strategy against the government. So November 1, 1765, the day the Stamp Act took effect, came and went and no one was using the required stamps. Essentially now, all trade, court activity, and publications were illegal as they did not have the required stamp paper to perform any of those activities. Newspapers continued to publish without the stamps, and no one seemed sure quite what to do at this point. Most colonial authorities were awaiting instructions from London. Next week, Parliament and the administration meets colonial resistance by quietly backing down. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.